This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I am Chris Kreitcho, happily here on our 101st episode to talk about technology and ethics with my friend, Stephen Caradini. It's like 101 Dalmatians, but the Dalmatians are all episodes about ethics. (laughs) Those are really, really weird dogs, just saying. Yes, they're very thoughtful dogs. Ethics dogs. Very thoughtful ethics dogs, yes. (laughs) I think we just found the title of the episode, Very Thoughtful (laughs) Ethics Dogs. So today, we're not going to talk about dogs, mostly. We're going to talk about... Unless we talk about robot dogs. The Boston Robotics dog is awesome and terrifying all at the same time. But uh, that's a dog we do ethics about, not an ethics dog. So... Uh, that, in fact, is one of the problems is, we're going to talk about today. Ex- that is what we're going to talk about today, which is AI and the limits of AI. And you may think, hey, you just kind of talked about this recently. And it's true, but we're going to talk about this in a different way because this is winning slowly and we can do that. And also, we're going to address a fairly common argument that even we, ethics podcasters of 101 episodes fame... Have espoused, Fame. have espoused in the past, which is okay. So, like, let's just not do AI then. Let's just shut it down if it's so bad, which sometimes is done honestly. Like, okay, like maybe we should just reject the concept of AI altogether. And then some people are snarkily like, okay, then like let's just get rid of all automation then if you don't like automation. And we're <laughs> gonna address both of those actually the snarky and the honest. And so the big thing that we're interested in here is, okay, so you can, should you, and then... Insert famous Jeff Goldblum quote here. I will, of course, put a link to the scene from Jurassic Park here. Indeed. Indeed. In the show notes. But the opposite end of this is, you should, can you? And the answer, surprisingly is not now and maybe not for a really long time. So when we've talked about this in the past, most notably back in season three in one of our slam dunks on Amazon. Juice up the weird edges of the ecosystem, actually. Such a great title. Yeah. The thing we have said in the past is that sometimes you just shouldn't roboticize a certain task, period. And we still think that sometimes you shouldn't roboticize certain tasks, period. But where we want to go developing outward from there is some of the questions about when you should and shouldn't, and also, as Stephen noted, how you can and cannot. I want to actually start with the latter, because one of the difficulties in talking about this is that so much of the discussion is framed by, as Stephen noted to me as we were prepping for the episode, HAL and 2001 A Space Odyssey and the Terminator movies come to mind mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. all the other stuff. Skynet is coming. The Terminator is going to come. Thank goodness that we fought them off repeatedly. Yep. Yep. The, the Matrix, 
so much of our science fiction in the last 50 years, Mm -hmm. not all of it, but a great deal of it has had in view this notion of AIs getting out of control and destroying us. And even at a more basic level, a lot of the concern, even in more realist terms, for lack of a better descriptor, about automation of jobs assumes with those AI nightmare scenarios, a great deal of capability of robotics and AI and machine learning. When in point of fact, there's actually some really important, significant limitations to what AI is capable of, to what robotic type creature-y things that we build are capable of. Super awesome spot robotic Boston Robotics Dog notwithstanding. Mm -hmm. We have to actually deal with what these things are truly capable of, not just what we imagine them to be capable of. Right. And having a discussion framed by what we imagine them to be capable of is useful. Mm -hmm. It does help us think through the ethics of whether we should build these things Mm -hmm. and what the costs would Mm -hmm. be of not building them. Asimov's three laws are interesting. Yeah. And even more interesting is Asimov's reflection over the course of quite a few books about all the limitations of the three laws and ways that they would go horribly wrong if just straightforwardly implemented as control structures on robotics. So when people talk about something like the three laws being a good control scheme, I want to look at them and say, have you actually read any Asimov? Because basically the the moral of the story is there is nope. Well, it's it's not entirely. (laughs) It's that they don't do what we expect them to do is the point of Asimov's thing. My favorite, I just read iRobot recently, and my my favorite of the stories is the the satellite where the AI suddenly begin to worship this unseen further out above them thing and they start to worship the master and they like refuse to allow humans to be a part of running the satellite <laughs> and then eventually they're like we didn't want to run the satellite anyway so like this is great <laughs> this is awesome let's go home <laughs> Done. Solved. Sorry for spoilers on that 70-year-old story. So, <laughs> But the point there is that while those kinds of genuinely far-out science fiction reflections on AI are important and valuable because they do help us think through the kinds of things we might need to consider as we get there. Yeah. And that includes all sorts of interesting stories, even in really surprising places, perhaps. Bungie, the game developer, had a decades-long interesting exploration in sort of the background of a bunch of their games that go all the way back to these classic Mac games in the early 90s, up through some of the stuff that what ended up being spun off into 343 Industries, bought by Microsoft and all of this, this idea of AIs going rampant, and that basically every AI has a seven-year lifespan, and after that, it's going to turn on you and try and destroy all life. Things like that. Things like the conflict between the Quarians and the Geth in Mass Effect. You can hear me and my wife talk about that in my Mass Effect podcast that we do together. This stuff comes up all over the place. And there is genuinely interesting ethical reflection to be done on it. And I would and I would note that on this particular issue, we actually do ethics, which is great. Yes. Like people yes. actually ethic. So on a base level, good job, society. 
You're such a millennial, Stephen. You just made ethics a verb. I know. I know. I'm really excited about it <laughs> because I'm excited about the fact that as a society, this is something that we, we have actually think about collectively yeah. worried about and thought about in meaningful ways. Like, hey, right. what would it be like if we had an entire sentient army of Geth? Like, what would that be like? Well, that's a good thing to think about. <laughs> Let's think about that. And we do that in all sorts of art, and it comes up in music sometimes, and it comes yeah. up in video games and movies, and it it's great. And the real eye in the real world, and this is where we've been kind of circling toward, is nothing like any of that. Yeah. It's extremely limited. Yeah. Steven's two-year-old, not even two-year-old, not even like two 18 year old. months old, right? Uh, yeah, 20-ish. Yeah. Toddler is way better at tons and tons and tons of things then any AI we can even conceive of being possible in the next decades. Deca- decade, at least. At, at least. Stephen's toddler can generalize. Stephen's toddler has object permanence. Stephen's toddler knows that a tiger and a bear are not the same thing. AIs out there, they've got none of that. Yeah. So the, the good thing here is that, yes, you want to think about ethics. You want to project into the future. You want to even see the worst situation. The fact that we have Skynet as a possibility in our cultural awareness means that when people do things like Amazon's face recognition software, people are like, Skynet, no, the end. Stop it. And like <laughs> that's a really helpful, useful thing. You've now used art as a shorthand for an ethical conversation right. about why we don't want to do this. That's, like, the most winning slowly thing. Like, that's good job, everyone. <laughs> now, the thing is that while it's important to have that in our cultural imaginary and while, like, Lewis Mumford and all of the lull and the, the technic-phobe people are super stoked that we're doing this, <laughs> there has to be a temperance of what is actually possible. So if you go and read the research on AI, some of which is going on on the campus I work at, you'll find that there's significant, and I don't just mean like incremental, but like significant walls that people yeah. who are doing AI research are hitting right now. They didn't hit them two years ago. They didn't hit them five years ago. And that's why this narrative of unfettered progress has been so successful is that over the last five years, there has been fairly unfettered progress. They haven't hit any right. major barriers that haven't been able to be jumped over by more computing power or by different ways of framing the problem or by different coding and methods in some cases, like just different ways of writing the programs, different ways of writing the algorithms. At this point, they're hitting not one, but multiple barriers that seem like long-term problems. Not insurmountable, but long-term problems. The one that I think is the most difficult and is the one that's going to catch AI for the longest is the one Chris mentioned, is the generalizability problem. We will link the the polar bear problem, uh, <laughs> which is a great situation where in a recent study, uh, a team of scientists gave a AI a video clip of a polar bear walking across uh, a tundra. Now, this is difficult for a lot of reasons. A polar bear is white, so is the tundra. Uh, Mm -hmm. Polar bears are intended to blend into tundra. (laughs) and Literally what they're designed for. Literally what they're designed to do. And the the clip is not in high contrast. So it's intended to simulate a real-world situation 
um, mm-hmm. or a, a situation that you might come across even if you're just like filming the regular world. So instead of preparing the data for the machine to use, they just gave it like a random piece of data. And although even that random piece of data is selected and curated and this that's a whole set of things about method and we'll talk about that some other time. But <laughs> but the point See here our episode on data. But the point here is that this is a generally difficult but not unusually so piece of video. And they asked it to say what animal was in the video. And instead of saying polar bear, polar bear, polar bear, polar bear, polar bear, this has always been a polar bear. It said several different animals as the polar bear moved across the video because when it was reflecting different pieces of light and when it was different, vaguely different shapes, the computer was like, oh, yeah, that's like this other thing I saw. That's like this other animal. It just turned into this other animal, which is, as a, again, as a toddler can tell you, like animals don't just transmogrify and then turn back. <laughs> it's, just, it's just not how it works. If you give, if, right. if you give a toddler... A chicken, and you dance the chicken across the table, it's gonna say, Chicken, 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 chicken. That's literally better <laughs> than the AI. <laughs> and what this gets at is that so Stephen noted implicitly, and I'll make it explicit here this machine learning algorithm had been trained on other data to recognize specific things. But what's actually happening when we talk about machine learning? is essentially a very specialized kind of calculus. I'm going to elide details for the sake of listeners out there, but it's interesting if you like math. We'll dump you some of Google's DeepMind papers, which are public. Oh, man. They are public, yeah. and they are, man. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of what's happening here is linear algebra. It's not the kinds of things that, as far as we understand, human brains are actually doing when we look at things. And there isn't, most importantly, there is not the sense of continuity and learning as we think about it as humans happening. There is structuring feedback loops with algorithms to produce desirable results. And when we call it machine learning, when we call it artificial intelligence, we imbue it with our notion of what learning and intelligence mean in living creatures, even living creatures much less sophisticated than humans yeah. in the kinds of things they're capable of learning. Yeah. You can train a dog or a cat and so on. These aren't what are happening in these systems. They're interesting things happening in these systems, but not this. Yeah, so... Aside, there's a small dog. I paused not because I'm done, but because there's a small dog wandering around my backyard. Dog. That's weird. It's still a dog. Dog. It's still a dog. <laughs> it turned into a cat. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's a dog again. But, uh, it's a dog again. <laughs> it's a dog again. Yeah, that's right. But the thing that comes out of thinking in those terms is that we fail to recognize that there's no sense of continuity here for this machine learning thing. It just is taking in a sequence of stills and analyzing how closely that still matches to other stills it has recognized in the past, or even other sequences that it has been trained to identify as a thing in the past. But there's no cognition happening. There's nothing in the machine actually thinking dog, cat, dog, cat, or bear, tiger, bear, lemur, or any of these things. That's not happening. It's just how closely does this approximate previous data that fits this? 
And there are open questions about human cognition. Right. Of whether we're just doing some super, super sophisticated version of that or not. But at a minimum, we have to recognize that what machines are doing in these machine, quote unquote, learning contexts is not what we think about when we think about human cognition. And therefore, is not. That's why it struggles with generalization right. and continuity and these kinds of things, because it's a different kind of thing. And it's partially because the the storage mechanisms, the way that we consider and talk about learning are different. So I'm really into this whole thing of like animal recognition right now, because that's what my child is doing <laughs> right now. We're learning animals. And so when my child sees a dog or hears a dog, he, my child says dog. And <laughs> right. that's not a result of going back through an infinite amount of data and checking against <laughs> things that are dog and are not dog. But it is a preconditioned response. This is what a dog sounds like. And so right. at a basic level, yes, that's... There's a category dog in your toddler's right. mind. And machine learning doesn't do categories right. like that. And doesn't have concepts. Well, and it can be trained to do categories like that if you put in the categories it's supposed to learn. But my child, on his own, has determined that there is a category called dog. Dog. Or doggy. But um, <laughs> so there's a level of intentionality and of self-sponsoredness that is an even further gap. That's beyond the generalization gap. Right. But the generalization gap is part of that larger problem of the self-sponsored and sort of ongoing nature of learning. That's what learning as right. a as a base level toddler to adult means is that you accrete information that you can draw on instantaneously to say this is how my world is around me. And right. So generalization problem totally a problem. As I mentioned, the next problem is this sort of self-sponsored initiative sort of problem, right. which is ultimately even larger, which is way larger. And ultimately what we're worried about when we get to Skynet and we get to right. the AIs in Hyperion who are trying to decide whether or not to eliminate humanity for their own purposes and things of this nature. It's right. again, good to be pondering those things to make sure that somebody isn't like, maybe we should just like give these AIs weapons. Like, um, you know, that doesn't sound too, too unplausible given that like we already have drones. So maybe it is right. good that we're thinking about like, hey, every time that somebody tries to equip an AI with Skynet or <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Every time someone tries to equip an AI with a weapon, half of the science fiction world is going to yell Skynet. Um, the other half. <laughs> and the other half is going to yell. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is a different story for a different day. This takes us around, though, to that ethical question that we should be asking, which is, okay, We there are actually a lot less things than we can automate than maybe it seems like there were going to be. What should we do with the ones that we can, like factory workers? And in the example we hit on back in season three, the Amazon Fulfillment Center people working around in really, frankly, terrible conditions, and truck drivers, and all of the places where it's 
thought right now. Automation is coming for us. Whether or not it is really depends on whether any of these problems we just highlighted are actually surmountable or whether they will prove intractable or whether they will prove intractable for a long, long time at a minimum. Or whether we... Or whether we adapt around some of these problems and have different right. uses for AIs than we expected, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But if you can successfully replace all cross-country truck drivers with self-driving cars, self-driving trucks, which looks pretty iffy. There are increasing numbers of roadblocks hitting the self-driving car programs, but maybe they'll surmount them. Maybe they'll get through them. If... If we can surmount those problems, if we can make it so that it is vastly safer to have machine learning directed trucks than human directed trucks, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what should we do? Yeah, it really depends on the context. It really depends on the abilities of the AI. It really depends on the state of the industry. As we've mentioned before on this show, there are way more trucks waiting to be driven than people who want to drive them right now. Right. So at a base minimum, there's the narrative that that trucks may take people's jobs, these automated trucks may take people's jobs, is not even true for a while because it would take a while for automated trucks to even get to the point where they've <laughs> taken up the jobs that aren't being taken, much less the ones that already are being done. So the ones that are being fulfilled by humans at this point. But it's, it's an important thing to note that if you have a factory and you can either replace your people with robots or you can treat your people like robots but not replace them with robots, you, you shouldn't do either of those things. <laughs> <laughs> this is not an ethical conundrum. This is an ethical consideration. You should treat your people well. And yes... You may be thinking, but the bottom line, no, not the bottom line. (laughs) You're in an ethics podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Right. The sheer amount of money you can possibly squeeze out of a particular thing is not the only consideration. Crazy talk, we know. But not crazy if you've listened to more than one episode of this show before. Yeah. So this is one of the areas where the, the theme of rejecting technology really comes home to bear. There's a lot of things in automation and roboticism that you should just reject. You should know as a person who would not like to be replaced yourself, if you're in a situation where you can replace people without having any sort of other situation to deal with the replacement, other jobs, other situations, trades with other corporations, civic engagement opportunities that allow you to do retraining or allow you to get people involved in other uh, situations that would allow them to be paid, maybe even by you, to do other things. There's a lot of options here. But if you're just going to be like, I'm going to put a robot in here and fire everybody, you're not doing the right thing. Right. We don't we don't ever and, say that on this show, but like, bar none, <laughs> you're not doing the right thing. Right, and the thing that makes that harder to identify in some cases, the factory robot replacing all workers there is a more obvious case. But then you start looking at the kinds of automating of tasks that happen simply via computerization or via the development of tools on computers that make automatic things that used to be 
laborious processes. And yeah. this has even happened in my industry. And it looks like there's a wave of more of it coming, including a bunch of things using machine learning technology. There was a really, really interesting project that came out of, I think, Airbnb. But in any case, I'll link it in the show notes, either early this year or last year, where they had put together a sophisticated design library for user interface components, buttons and links and toggles and all of these things. And then they trained some machine learning tooling so that a designer could sketch out on paper a picture of what they wanted, and the AI could map that back into those actual components and generate the relevant version of that particular piece of user interface that the designer had just sketched on paper using something that looked roughly like the components in the design library. Now, on the one hand, this is fantastic because it lets a designer go from idea to something that broadly works, maybe needs a little wiring done here and there behind it, but all the pieces are in the right places on the page using the right components that Airbnb or whoever it was had put together. On the other hand, a non-trivial part of what a fair number of I and my colleagues do is that, is building that library and then putting the pieces together in the right way on the page. And so, you know, it's it's easy to kind of wave your hand and say that about Amazon, but it gets a little more interesting if you're, as in a little closer to home for most sort of white collar workers, information workers, all of this kind of thing, because a lot of these kinds of tooling are actually applicable to our fields. Yeah. Now, I'm not super worried. I think people who end up doing the kind of work I do are probably going to be just fine because there are more hard, difficult problems to solve than get these things laid out on the page correctly. But it also ups the bar for entry because that is the way that a lot of people get into this field. And so there are yeah. knock-on effects with these things that get particularly complicated that even if you've done all the right things yeah. in terms of providing transition paths and providing alternative career options and giving people more interesting work to do, all of a sudden it's that much harder for someone to step in because the bar is now that much higher for what you have to be capable of doing if all of those things that are sort of your entree into a field are now just automated and gone. And that doesn't mean we won't adapt and become capable of doing them, but I raise it as an example of the kinds of things that a simple rejection of that technology would head off, but also those are not really the fun parts of my job. And yet there are, I would be happy, honestly, to be working in a system where I could sketch something on paper and have it generate most of the dumb and menial parts of my job for me. That's good. Right. But I can also see these knock-on effects, these secondary effects that we need to think about those as well right. if we do say yes right. to these kinds of automating processes. But at the same time, there's now, once you take out that menial aspect of things, there's one, someone's going to be in charge of making sure that library continues to work, which, <laughs> yes. and as many libraries as there are, there's going to be as many people who are tasked with making sure that thing works. So... That's another job that's at least moved from one slot to another slot, right? And then there's a whole bunch of other jobs that are now available because you don't have to have somebody sitting there right. doing UI 
types of menial coding. Now, designing UI is that much more interesting now. You can now imagine right. things and, and do things. And honestly, that's, we have... You can iterate way faster, and it's cool. And we have multiple UI, UX, user experience, user architecture programs at my university. So even the slow-moving university, the, the academy <laughs> writ large is catching up with some of those ideas of like, okay, so like let's teach people to design then if we're not going to be doing a whole bunch of coding. Um, I teach user experience at a basic level. I don't teach the, the whole class, but I teach people how to do audience analysis and how to interpret the, the needs of the user in various contexts. And I can't code a lick. <laughs> I can make batch scripts. <laughs> I'm very proud of him. And hey, he started learning regular expressions I recently. I was very excited about regular expressions. He was so excited. It was hilarious. I'm, I'm basically going to regular expression the entire world. <laughs> so yeah, I can't Python or Ruby. I can't do any of that stuff. But I know the higher order functions of what those things are supposed to be doing. And I can teach students how to do that. So at some level, we are going to hit these road bumps where stuff you knew how to do is going to be automated. But... And maybe even the fun parts of some things that that you like to do are going to be automated. There are people who do integrations work uh, that I know personally that love doing that stuff. And that seems like a thing that 10, 15 years from now, you're just going to have computers talking to computers and they're going to work that stuff out. Maybe. 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 But That's actually the hard spot. Well, there you go. So... Um, <laughs> But I'm just saying, there's there's stuff that yeah. we can't even conceive of, which is the the you know this is sort of a trope in the positive end of the the mm -hmm. digital utopian stuff. And there is an element of truth to this, which is there's stuff we can't conceive of that we're going to be doing, which is true right. because if you look back 20 years, the stuff that many of us do now like literally didn't exist. Like we couldn't be experts right. at it because there wasn't anything to be an expert at. So in yeah. some ways, 30 years ago, my job was inconceivable. Right. So in some ways that digital trope, that utopian sort of, yeah, we'll just find new things to be doing with our lives is true because we see it bear right. out in practice. In other ways, we do have to take some time and think about, okay, what is worth preserving? What is mm -hmm. in the core practice what is the human aspect? What is the, the ultimate thing we're doing here for each of these industries? And I would wager for what you're doing, it's the user experience. It's the core action of can a person do this thing they want to do and do they right. like doing it? Do they like the experience of doing it? Um, even if right. like the experience is that it's you know seamless and they don't get hung up on things. That low level sort of like where it's like, hey, that was fine. That wasn't terrible. Yeah. And so finding that core human element, which in a factory is a much harder question, right? Like, what's the core yeah. human element of factory? I don't know. There might not be one. Right. It's considering all of those things and looking backwards towards our, our episode on work and thinking what's the core human element of work, that's going to guide the ways that we think about what should we automate and what should we not automate. And we can trace that out, but it's an infinite ever looping thing, right? You're just going to have yes. to, as people in your lives, you're going to have to think, what's the core human element of this? Can I automate this? Should I automate this? And you're going to have to do that in your lives, dear listeners. Right. And one of the things I think is particularly worth calling out there, it is true that there are vastly more jobs than 
maybe people would have imagined that exploded out of some of these innovations, ideas, et cetera, from the last several decades. And that even things that got automated away, new interesting things have replaced them. But one of the challenges for us is how many of those are quote-unquote knowledge work. And not everybody wants to do knowledge work. And knowledge work is not the only good or valuable kind of work. And so when we make these moves, we need to make sure that we're not essentially concretizing our own particular likes and dislikes into the the whole class and economic structure of the world around us. That it's just fine in this new shiny world, as long as what you like is working with a computer, not with your hands. We don't want to do that. And we need to be very careful not to do that. Now, I think there are good opportunities in the elimination of the menial to allow people to get back to a thing we had with many other kinds of trade-offs with it. I'm not going to go into all of those, but an artisanship approach to the creation of things. And you can see this. There are, there are other downsides to these, but you can see this in the emergence of things like third wave coffee and craft brewing and some of these things that, yeah, there's there's some automation at large scale and there are some major, major players in those spaces. You know, the Starbucks and the Budweiser's of the world exist, but there are also some really astounding things happening at a, a kind of artisanry, artisanship. Artisanry? Artisanry is the thing. Yeah. I, I allow I, it. Okay. We'll run with it. <laughs> artisanship level in some of these things. And we see that happening elsewhere. I, I see opportunities and avenues opening up where people increasingly value and therefore will pay for things that are artisanal and organic and handcrafted. Yep. And we make fun of that because it's a millennial trope. But it's a millennial trope because people recognize that there are value to those kinds of things in ways that older generations did not value because they were like, I have to spend $65 an hour on a plumber. I don't want artisanal plumbing. I want plumbing. (laughs) Right. Right. Artisanal coffee is a little different than artisanal plumbing. But maybe not for long. If we could have robotic plumbing things that just went down and fixed your pipes, that might not actually be so bad. To loop back to the beginning of this episode, plumbing <laughs> and electrical type stuff is actually going to be super hard. Literally the hardest construction thing stuff to is do super hard for for robots because you have to generalize at a mass scale. You have to be able to look at a pipe yes. you've never seen before and figure out like, oh, that's like this other pipe that I do. That's like this other problem. So I actually have great great expectation that we will be paying <laughs> sixty five to one hundred twenty dollars an hour for plumbers and electricians for an extremely long time. And rightly so. And rightly so. So, But it is true that there are many things that we need to make sure that we don't just preserve the things we like, but that we preserve the things that are in the greater good in our wider community. And so listening to what people's concerns are is important and continuing to think ethically about robots and think about what they mean in specific contexts. It's important. The music at the beginning of the episode had nothing to do with robots. (laughs) 
It's, we normally try to be on if we can, but, you know, sometimes. It's just about Jesus, actually. <laughs> it's a great song. Who is better than robots, for the record. He is. It's a great song. It's called <laughs> Knocking by Basement Revolver. I commend it to you. It's one of my favorite songs of the year so far. And uh, we used it with permission. Please don't use it without permission. Thanks as well to this month's sponsors, including Kurt Klassen. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so at Scaradini, at Chris Kreitcho, at winning slowly. Those are the Twitter ones. And you can hit us at uh, email hello at winningslowly.org. I will say... I apologize to the last person who emailed us. It took a while for us to get there because it's been sort of a weird summer for Chris and I. Uh, But I did get back to them, and we had some great feedback about our work episode that will require us to actually think more and before we can come (laughs) up with answers. It was a great multi-hundreds of words long email, and we loved it so much. And so we really appreciate that. And so don't be afraid to ask us questions like, you didn't think about this, did you? Sometimes we have to say like, (laughs) no. No, we did not. And we love that. So thank you. So please do that. Hello at winningslowly.org. And uh, as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>